Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you do save us. And you save us not as a one-off thing, though Christ's sacrifice was once for all, but you save us every day. And you save us from so much. You save us from ourselves. You save us from temptation. You save us for purpose, Lord. I ask that you will soften our hearts and open our ears as we consider your word together. Amen. So we are studying the book of Esther, and it's an Old Testament book. Um, It's one of the latest books chronologically. It's set about 470 years before Christ. And in the overall flow of the Old Testament, this is an odd book. It stands out for a lot of reasons. One is, which makes it difficult to preach, the fact that God's name isn't directly mentioned The fact that it's quite a dramatic, entertaining story and the fact that it seems to be, when you get to the end, a tale of revenge. With Esther, we have to tread quite carefully. Um, We don't have a narrator who's commenting on the behaviour of the characters, telling us when to cheer and when to boo. Uh, Even the apparently good characters in this story aren't necessarily people we want to copy. The the truth is that nobody's 100% good, and the characters, because they're real in this book, are no exception. So we have to keep our wits about us as we try to grasp the relevance of this story and its crucial importance in the history of salvation. Because without the events that take place in the book of Esther, there would have been no Jesus There would have been no Jews. There would have been no heir of King David. Now, of course, there was never a risk that God's plan of salvation would fail because God is sovereign. He's all-knowing and all-powerful. So amongst other themes, this book is about the sovereignty of God. We'll talk more about that later. Last week, Keith introduced us to this book, and in particular to the first chapter. And the events of chapter one are important in the development of the story, so I think a quick recap's in order. We have King Ahasuerus, and he's the king of the Persian Empire, and in modern terms you'd say he's the head of a global superpower. The Persian Empire stretched across two continents, India and Africa, Uh, And Ahasuerus is an important, influential guy, not to mention he has a completely unpronounceable name. The king throws a huge party, and it's an opportunity for him to show off. No expense spared, and he invites all the best people. Meanwhile, his wife, Queen Vashti, throws her own party for the women. And we find out a bit about Queen Vashti. Firstly, she's a stunner. Down through the centuries, not a lot's changed, unfortunately. People were obsessed with appearance back then, and they still are. Women were and are objectified, men less so. The Bible notes this fact, but doesn't condone it. It doesn't approve. The second thing that we find out about Queen Vashti is that she has principles. 
And towards the end of the party, King Ahasuerus is sloshed, frankly. The text says, his heart was merry with wine. As you can perhaps imagine, a tipsy monarch is a hazard to himself and to others. And we'd like to think that the people in charge of running our nations are serious types, not prone to impulsive outbursts. We hope that they don't have itchy trigger fingers. We hope that they're not too ready to push the button that starts a global nuclear war. We implicitly expect that monarchs and government leaders, they take their responsibilities seriously, knowing that they've got a duty to protect their citizens. And yet, we know that power corrupts. Ahasuerus, with no one to restrain him, becomes intoxicated and, while in that state, calls for his wife. Summon Vashti, my exquisite queen! Let everyone admire her remarkable beauty. He's already shown off his wealth. Now he wanted to show off his crowning jewel, his wife. If you put yourself in Vashti's position, what would you do? Would you voluntarily go into the court of the king to be drooled over and leered at by all the drunken dignitaries he's trying to impress? Or would you toss your head and say, we are not coming? (laughs) Queen Vashti, who may well have been pregnant at the time, she chose the latter. Uh, Did she know the risk she was taking? Was she sick of the boorish behaviour of her husband? The Bible doesn't tell us. The king consults his wise men. What should he do about the wife who has refused to respond to the command of the king? Now, they take an exaggerated position and say, if you let this disrespect go unanswered, wives up and down the empire will start to follow her example. Husbands will be disrespected. You should send out a strong message. The Bible has plenty to say about the love and respect that should exist between husbands and wives. But in this text, remember, we are reading the advice given by heathens to a heathen king. The Bible's reporting history. It isn't saying that wives should be terrified into submission. I feel it's important I make that point very, very clear. So the the history tells us what Ahasuerus uh, does. He essentially divorces the queen. She's banished from his presence. Was she dismayed? Was she relieved? We don't know. What we do know is that the stage is now set for chapter 2, and that's where we're picking up the story. So the book of Esther, chapter 2, it's a few books before Psalms, which is roughly in the middle of your Bible, if you're using a, a real proper paper version. First uh, and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. Esther 2. We'll start by reading verses 1 to 4. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, 
Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Well, these events, uh, it looks like they occur about three years after Queen Vashti's banishment. The king casts his mind back to his departed queen, and some of the men in his court come up with a plan, which is perhaps to cheer up their downcast monarch. And they suggest that the king arrange to round up lots of beautiful, young, unmarried women so he can have his pick. And the king warms to this idea. Now let's put some flesh on this. Imagine that Prince Charles is now king. And imagine that he falls out with Camilla. And sh- so he passes a law that says that the police are going to go door to door looking for beautiful teenage girls. The girls will be rounded up and made to participate in a beauty pageant for his pleasure. We're already feeling repelled by this idea, aren't we? It's inconceivable that something like this should happen. But as we'll see in Esther's case, it's even worse than an enforced beauty pageant. Let's read on, verses 5 and 6. Now there was a Jew in, Su- in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So here's Mordecai. He's a central character, and we're told his very recent genealogy. His great-grandfather was Kish of the tribe of Benjamin, and Kish shares his name with the father of Saul, King Saul, who's also a Benjaminite, who became the first king of Israel. So it looks like Mordecai and Saul are related. And to understand the significance of this, we need to know some Israelite history. So Israel was arch enemies with a nation called Amalek. And the Israelites and the Amalekites fought repeatedly until one day under King Saul, the Israelites defeated the Amalekites, killing the Amalekite king, King Agag. And in chapter 3, we're going to encounter a descendant of King Agag, a man called Haman. And Haman hasn't forgiven the Jews for killing his ancestor. And Haman feels particularly vindictive towards the relatives of King Saul, so that includes Mordecai. And this rivalry is a central plot point, which we'll find out more in a later sermon. Now, I said earlier that God isn't directly mentioned in the book of Esther, but in the way this situation's set up and in the events that follow, we can see God at work. Romans 8.28, which Keith quoted last week, a favorite passage, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So God's sovereignly working through these circumstances. And the clue to understanding Esther its place within our modern Bibles is the sovereignty of God. 
And in case that's an unfamiliar phrase, let me explain what I mean. There's no situation so dreadful that God can't use it. There's no evil that God can't overthrow. There's no person that God cannot teach or draw to him if he chooses. And throughout the Old Testament, we hear time and time again God talking of the special fondness that he has for Israel and how he's going to protect them for all generations. Briefly dip into Isaiah. Isaiah 46, verses 8 to 10. This is Isaiah 46, verses 8 to 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God. There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purposes. God will accomplish his purposes. And there there are dozens and dozens of passages in the Bible that talk about the sovereignty of God. So in this story, although we don't hear God's name mentioned, we see him working, bringing people together, affecting people's hearts, and ensuring that he will be glorified and that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Saviour, will be revealed and his purposes will be fulfilled. And this is why Mordecai appears in this story. He's going to be mightily used by God. But at this point in chapter 2, he doesn't know it yet. We'll read on, verses 7 to 11. He, that's Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, different translation of her name, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Hegai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to be to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Okay, so here's the heroine, Esther. It's her name on the book. Esther's an orphan, and she's actually Mordecai's cousin, but because of the age gap between them, He's raising her as his daughter. And in two ways, we see Mordecai's fatherliness. So one, he, knowing that anti-Semitism is a big issue in Persia, he counsels Esther to keep her ancestry quiet. And many people dislike Jews, so don't tell them you're a Jew. Two, every day he paces up and down in front of the harem, and he's anxious to know how his adopted daughter is getting on. So Mordecai shows wisdom and concern for this girl he's raising. He's a good father. 
In ancient Persia, Persia, it was common for wealthy, powerful men, like the king, to have a harem. The harem was the place where the women of the household lived, and often they'd be looked after and protected by a eunuch. And eunuchs were men who had been emasculated and trained into a life of powerful service. You might think that this is a terrible thing to have happen, but there was some compensation for this physical state. Uh, They could rise to positions of power and trust, particularly because they couldn't produce heirs that could compete for the power of their master, and they'd be unlikely to fool around with their master's women. So harems and eunuchs, these are pretty alien concepts, aren't they? Within the harem, Esther does well. She charms Haggai. He's the eunuch in charge. And we can fully believe that as well as being beautiful to look at, Esther has something much more valuable, a beautiful temperament. So Haggai favors Esther, and he assigns seven maids to attend to her, and he moves them all into the best spot in the harem. In verses 12 to 14, things take an unsavory turn. And we know this has been coming. The whole plan has been hinted at. But still, what comes next is offensive. Verses 12 to 14. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for the women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. There's no other way to put this. These young women, they are going through a distasteful initiation after which they become concubines, the king's mistresses. They're transferred to a new harem where all the other concubines live and Concubines, they were mistresses under the protection of the man of the household and they had fewer rights than wives and they couldn't produce legitimate heirs. And like it or not, this will be another step in Esther's journey through the purposes of God. Did she enjoy this process? We aren't told. Did God approve of the methods used by the Persians? Well, since it involves sex outside marriage, we have to say not. And yet, these were the customs of the time, and God works through them sovereignly. There's one thing that made me smile wryly here. We're told that these young ladies were given 12 months of beauty treatments. 12 months. Just remember that the next time you think someone's taking a bit too long in the shower. (laughs) Verses 15 to 18. 
When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So Esther's learned her father's wisdom. She deferred to the eunuch Hegai before her audience with the king. And Hegai knew the king well. Presumably, he knew what was going to please the king. So Esther asks for his advice and she follows it. A little humility goes a long way. Now the king is blown away by Esther. From what we're told, this isn't simply because she was attractive. She's shown thoughtfulness and wisdom. She's been humble and of good spirit. Of all the women who were gathered together for the king's pleasure, Esther stood out. And because of this, God could use her mightily. Whatever our circumstances whether we like them or not, let's ask God to use us. Let's ask him to grow the fruit of his spirit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We have to be careful here. We see that God's purposes are fulfilled, but the means through which his plans unfold include concubines, eunuchs, polygamy, overemphasis on personal appearance, and so on. And we know that God doesn't approve of these things because his word tells us so. The Ten Commandments clearly express the moral standards underpinning this universe he created. So why did he let it happen in this way, you might say? Let me answer that question with another question. How else was God going to position people within this empire so that his special people, the Jews, would not only be saved, but would once again see the goodness of God, to see it poured out on them? We don't see Esther complaining about the fate that's befallen her. Ah, you might say, she's become queen, so she was handsomely compensated. But think about what we're saying. Esther wasn't free. She was subject to the will and the whims of the king, just as Vashti had been. Her position is precarious, not just because of how her husband might behave, but also because no one knows she's a Jew. And if that comes out, she's going to be in mortal danger. And the process she's been through is degrading Being given 12 months beauty treatment, not for your own merits, but for someone else's pleasure, that's humiliating. 
And yet through all this, we see that Esther patiently trusted that there was a greater purpose to be fulfilled. God is going to use Esther repeatedly. Last few verses, 19 to 23. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai, as Esther's guardian, he's gained a position of respect and prominence. This phrase, sitting at the king's gate, suggests he's got some kind of official role. And he has a post right next to the king's private spaces, so he's in a position of trust. We don't know why Big Than or Teresh became angry with the king. Maybe they'd previously worked for Vashti and they'd lost prominence when she was banished and when Esther was crowned. That's speculation, but whatever the case, they have an axe to grind and they're planning to harm the king. And Mordecai finds, finds out. He tells Esther and Esther tells the king. The king is saved and he executes the conspirators. And the king makes a particular point of recording these events. And this is important because in chapter 6, we're going to find the king rereading this story during a bout of insomnia. Your homework is to try and remember that fact until the 31st of March when Keith will preach on chapter 6. This brings us to the end of the chapter and it leaves us in a state of suspense. We don't know, we know that the What's happened here is significant, but without peeking ahead, we don't know quite why. There are going to be more sermons covering the rest of this story, but feel free to read it before then. It's an intriguing story. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. But I'll just leave you with some closing thoughts. I've mentioned that some of the things that we've read here are repulsive. It's okay to find things in the Bible uncomfortable. It's okay to disapprove of some of the events that are recorded here. I really can't imagine that God approves of rounding up virgins and handing them over to a king. We don't always prefer the circumstances we find ourselves in. Would Sharon and I have chosen the path that God has us walking? Would we have chosen ill health and disability for our children? No. And yet within these circumstances, Esther's and ours, we see the hand of God at work. Esther's life, centuries, millennia later, testifies to the goodness and protection of God. Our lives testify to his goodness and protection. God uses difficult circumstances to create remarkable miracles. And these miracles glorify God. Romans 8.28, these things are for our good and for his glory. 
In the 12 months of her preparation, Esther persevered, and when she was due to stand before the king, she made sure she was ready. And the Bible talks about patience, preparation, and readiness. Matthew 24, 4 to 14. Matthew 24, 4 to 14. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And the Apostle Paul says this in Romans 5, 3 to 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In trials, God teaches us perseverance. The story of Esther glorifies God. He works through our lives as he worked through hers so that he will be glorified and so that ultimately we can stand before him bearing the righteousness of Christ, redeemed, saved. At this point in Esther's story, we might struggle to see how God's salvation will be achieved. And in much the same way, if we ended the story of Christ at the moment he was taken to the cross, we would have no hope. But in both cases, the story continues. God will be glorified. We, his children, will be saved. Persevere and trust him. Lord God, we thank you for these stories that are given to us for our encouragement. Many of us don't have to endure to this extent, but we still have to endure. Many of us have been through trials even worse than those that we are recounting now. But we know that you are Lord, you are God, you are faithful through all. And we thank you. We thank you, Father, for walking with us. Amen. Something else I wanted to say. Some people struggle with purpose and identity. Why am I here? God, what am I supposed to be doing? I know I've had that a lot. Formed a false idea of what it meant to be a Christian and felt continually guilty if I wasn't out there evangelizing all the time. One of the messages of Esther is that we are here to serve God. There's, um, there's a set of teachings called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. 
A catechism is simply a series of questions and answers that particularly children were taught to remember. And one of the questions in the catechism is, what is the chief end of man? What's our purpose? Why are we here? What is the chief end of man? And the answer is to that question. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So we don't need some grand purpose. We don't need to be wealthy. We don't need to be famous. We don't need to be successful. Just think about this. God's purpose in our life is to obey him. And you can do that cleaning floors. And that is no more or less important than being in some grand position of power. We don't need to aspire to that unless it is God's call on our life. Our purpose is obedience. It's as simple as that. Proverbs 9.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man. You've got lots of ideas about what you want to do, what you want to do with your life, or maybe you have none. But many are the plans in the mind of a man but is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. This is about surrendering, isn't it? Lay down your plans. 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. We have God's word. We know better. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So that's it. You know, you may not get some big flash in the sky, some massive revelation of what God's got you here for. We have a tendency, we must resist it, to talk ourselves up, to talk our children up, to talk each other up. That is worldly think thinking. It is enough to obey God. Our purpose, I keep saying this, this is the truth. Our purpose is to obey God. Everything else that we do, everything must come from that overall purpose. And if you are obeying God, you don't ever need to wonder what you're here for, whether you have some greater calling, whether you're really doing what he wants. And if you're not sure how to walk in obedience to God, there is one very simple solution. Read the Bible cover to cover. Everything you need to know is in there. God bless you.